Isaiah said that Christ came to order his kingdom. What does that mean for the church? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Seitz. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. And Isaiah, when, when he prophesied of the coming of Christ, he wrote in Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. When we read this, it's easy to think of all his titles and everything. But one thing that it says in there is that he is establishing his kingdom and he will order it and he will cause it to be have justice and he will cause it to have, have uh, judgment. And when you think about that, that makes sense because the fall starts with Satan convincing Eve to flip the order, to make the creature in the role of the creator. He says, you'll be like God. And so when Christ comes, he comes and it says, for God so loved the world, the cosmos, the created order, that he sent his only begotten son. He sent his son to reestablish order in creation because the fall was about it getting out of order where the creature starts to act like they're the creator. And so as the body of Christ, the church has a real responsibility to be doing that work of Christ. So, so how does this work out and what the church should be doing? So, I mean, you mentioned the creation order, and I, and I want to go back even just a little bit farther than that when you actually look at creation itself. And, and it's important to establish that God is a God of order, and you get that right in creation. I mean, some of the first things you see is the earth was formless and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and then God comes in and God starts speaking, and he introduces order into this formlessness. And all throughout creation, that's if you, if you want, you could say that each day of creation is an establishment of a new sort of order. It's setting the bounds of the sea goes here and the land goes here and the stars go here and they all have their circuits and, and so forth. I mean, so God's establishing order from the beginning. And then he gets to man and he creates man and he gives man a job, which the job is basically to further that work of establishing order in the world. He puts man in a garden in Eden, and there's wilderness around. And then he tells man, you're supposed to go and you're supposed to have dominion. You're supposed to make the rest of that wilderness like a garden. That's, you know, roughly speaking. Mm -hmm. Man's job is to introduce, in, in, in the sinless world, man's job is, hey, there's disorder out there, and you're supposed to bring order to it. And then with sin introduced into the world now, there's a couple of problems. Number one is that, there's more or disorder that's introduced in the, into the world. And it's a sort of pernicious disorder. Right. It's where, the disorder of rebellion rather than just the disorder of Rather than just the nature. disorder of, hey, God's, God's giving you a job to do. You right. know, he left things undone for you to do. This is more, now there's a war that's on. Now there's some, something actively working against God. And then on top of that, not only is there a, higher level of disorder, but now it's much harder for man to do the job that he's been given because he's now fallen and all of his works are tainted by that fallenness. And the world that he's working in is a harder world to work in. So all of those things that are happening there at the fall are saying that 
and, and, and notice what hasn't changed with any of that is the job doesn't change. Even down when Noah gets off the ark, he's told basically the exact same job mm-hmm. that Adam had. So the job for man is consistent throughout there of you need to bring order into the world. And yet sin is always in the way of bringing that order into the world until God decides to intervene. Like it's prophesied here in Isaiah, when Christ is going to come into the world and he's going to establish order in ways that man was always supposed to be doing, but because of sin was incapable of doing that. And then Christ comes in and says, there's going to be order and you're supposed to go and you're supposed to teach all the nations everything I've commanded you. I mean, that's that's a form of bringing order into the world that was disordered by the nature of sin. And so if you start if you start with the principles of God's a God of order, God created man in the image of him in order to bring order into the world, and then man failed from that right from the beginning, and yet Christ is going to come. Christ is going to be the second Adam. Christ is going to bring that order back. That should mean we should think about things are different now not that things are different in the the sense of the job we have to do but things are different in our ability to actually fulfill the things that god gave us to do because of the work of christ it's important to recognize i mean i like how you tied it back to genesis because the answer is the same it's so many people think that the the responsibility of the church is the church but the responsibility of the church is to fulfill the the commandment given to the first adam that's now fulfillable through the second adam which is dominion of the whole world. And I think a lot of people look at the church and go, well, the church you know, has enough problems on its own that it's not supposed to affect anything else. But no, Jesus Christ, his kingdom is the world. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And so <clears throat> when we think about order, we shouldn't just be thinking about order inside the church. We're supposed to be establishing order in society. So what, what do you mean by order? Because, um, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, because I think people could take different meanings. I mean, are we talking, you know, just strictly obedience to God? Are we talking, um, you know, maintenance of the established authority? Are we talking about, um, you know, organizing all your shirts in your closet by color? I mean, the last one. How <laughs> did you guess? Um, well, it seems to me that when we're talking about it, what we're talking about is taking dominion. It is putting things in the order the way that God would like them to be ordered. So it's certainly. It is the right application of the law of God in all circumstances. I would throw I would throw this out. It's it's that line from the Lord's Prayer where you want everything on earth to be as it is in heaven. That that that, that if if that were the case, then you could say, all right, now we've established order. You, you start with the assumption that everything in heaven is orderly because it's exactly right. It's exactly as God would have it to be. There's nothing in heaven that's out of place. And yet on earth, things are out of place. And when Jesus prays that prayer, he's saying, hey, introduce order into the world. Make earth like heaven. And we know that until he comes back again, that's not going to be completed. But he's not praying that prayer and asking us to then imitate him in praying that prayer because it's a hopeless cause. And specifically, you look at 1 Corinthians 15, where he won't, he'll return to defeat the last enemy, which is death, which means that all the other disorder has been defeated. I mean, that's that's the promise, and that's what the prayer is saying, that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, that is the picture, right, is that that the church will bring order. So like you said, it's not a hopeless cause at all. I mean, with with the spirit of power, we can now do what, what Israel can never do and what the Jews can never do. 
we can actually establish order. I mean, and, we're, and we should, it's worth pointing out, we're 2,000 years into that order having been established. I mean, when we look at the world, I mean, and we've talked about this in a lot of episodes, how the world has changed since the coming of Christ. And so there's this part of it where when we, everybody, there's, some people look and they go, why is it that technology was only developed in certain ways? Why is it that certain things only came about in certain ways? There is an order that changed with the coming of Christ. And there's a way that the world began advancing in ways that it had not begun advancing before Christ coming into the world. And so, I mean, when you look at the world, when you look at the amount of order required to do so many of the things that exist in the world, we should understand that, I mean, it's not like this is starting today. We are, we're, we're already well into that process. And in so many ways, the reason why you even have to do this episode is because the, the history that we're being taught is out of order. So you can't even understand and see the order that has already been imposed upon the world by the kingdom of God. And the church is failing to teach that history in an orderly way. It's allowing the society to teach history. So, I mean, when I was in school, they switched from it being history to being social studies. Social studies, they intentionally misorder the societies because they say there is no pattern. There is no ordering. And if there is no ordering, then there's no advancing of the culture. And so then you can say all cultures are equal. Well, that's blatantly false. It makes no sense at all. And if you actually study history the way that God's doing it, you actually see that there is a pattern of, of conquest. There is a pattern of dominion that's taking place. There is a pattern that that sin causes real destruction and that other people come in that are walking in a more orderly way. And there's a reason the, 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 uh, you know, all the having the colonies by England and France and all of Christendom having colonies. Well, there's a reason why it worked that way and not the other way. It wasn't random. It was Europe had a lot more order than Africa had than India had. So guess what? They end up ruling. It's the way it works because God is about establishing order. And that is part of the way he established order, not even by righteous men. I'm not even saying that they were doing it to further the gospel. But at the same time, they were taking dominion. They were doing because what Christendom had taught them. They were doing it to say they are supposed to take dominion. And a lot of those things that, that were embraced 150 years ago, 200 years ago, that, that really ch changed the world in huge ways, unbelievable ways, the church is now embarrassed about and is retreating and saying we shouldn't be establishing order. We should just accept the world as it is. Well, no, the purpose of the church is to change the world. It is to take dominion. You know, and one of the the verses that I think really, really demonstrates this is to how effectual it is to cause the glory of God to be seen. Order is seen in the glory of God. You have the Queen of Sheba visiting Solomon when he's king in First Kings 10. Four through nine, when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceeded the fame of which I heard. Happier your men and happier these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord had loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. She's looking at the way he set the table. She's looking at the way her, his servants are dressed. She's looking at the way he built an entryway so that he could go up to the house of the Lord. 
I mean, these are like really mundane things that she's looking at and saying, well, that proves there's a God. Because Solomon's order in those things was completely different than anybody else ordered things. And obviously, Solomon's reign is a picture of the kingdom of God. It's a picture of the reign of the, the Prince of Peace, right? And so when you look at these things and hear these things, it's not just that we say we get the church service in order. Our responsibility for order is broader than that. It's how do you set the table? How do you – and we're like in a society, in a culture ever since the 60s where we're saying rebel against all order. You can't have things orderly. We have to just recognize how much destruction that that's brought on to America in particular and, and recognize the church's responsibility because the church has a responsibility to bring order out of chaos, and we've been embracing bringing chaos in. I think that passage with the Queen of Sheba really shows two things. I mean, first of all, it you know you should sit there and look at it and understand that it happened. And if if you if right now we could look and see Solomon's court, we would be we would be impressed by it. But there's also a sense of where do you understand what it took to impress her? And you look at the world that exists today, and there's this part of it where I mean it is both the establishment of the fact that Solomon was a shadow of Christ's kingdom. Because do you understand what has happened? I mean, when you look at what has happened in the world today, do you understand how much greater Christ is than Solomon? And so the Queen of Sheba really did come. She really was impressed by these, these things. They really did take her breath away. Do you understand both how the world has changed? And do you also understand the nature of how impressive order is? I don't think most people have a sense of how much order it requires to have like the air traffic system that we have. How much order it require? I mean, to have to, for the internet to exist, how much order has to be built into everything? That everything speaks the same protocol. That all the communication is set up in the same way. That the tolerance. I mean, they don't understand yeah, how power. tight all the tolerances are, and everything that's required. The infrastructure is mind-boggling of what it takes to actually set all these things up. And they turn around. I mean, like I was thinking of automobiles as an example. I was in Africa a couple of weeks ago in one of the poorest parts. And people were upset that the gas stations didn't open until 7. Now, first of all, they expected cars to be there. They expected mechanics to be able to work. And I'm saying that Nigerians were having this issue. Not. Right. And they expected there to be gas stations. They expected there to be – I mean, and the infrastructure for every one of those things is huge. You look at how many pieces of, of different parts that go into a car. And each one of those has to have a machining line to produce it. I mean, it's – it's enormous what it takes to build a car, and that requires a huge amount of order. There's a reason why nobody did that until the last 120 years, 130 years. It's because it was too daunting of a task to fix all those things, and it took years. And now we're so naive to believe that order can be established that we go, in 2030, everything will be electric cars. Do you know how much infrastructure that takes? But people don't recognize that it is because the church was orderly because we were saying things had to be ordered, that all this infrastructure in place, because without it, none of the infrastructure would be in place. And they just think that you can produce this infrastructure out of nowhere, when the reality is once you rejected the idea things should be orderly, and as a nation, we've rejected the idea things should be orderly, you can't make that switch. We don't have the capacity to switch over and create a new infrastructure for electric vehicles. It's just naive. It's just silly. 
But these people actually think that they can pass laws and cause it to happen because they have no idea of how the world actually works because the church does such a bad job of declaring it. But I think a lot of people think they are putting things in order. Like we need electric vehicles, so we're going to pass laws. We're going to pass regulation. You know, we're going to pass, you know, mountains of regulation on power plants and this and that and the other. And I think a lot of people would see that that is order. Look at all these, look at all these hoops you have to jump through. You have to be very ordered in how you do it. And it's a it's an order against taking dominion, though, right? I mean, it's it's order of of, and it's not really orderly because everybody knows in the end that the way you have to get these things, these things are set up to create bribery and to create corruption, not to create order. It's to create power through a shift so that so that somebody who's powerful can manipulate the government. GM can manipulate the government to have pa laws passed so that they get money. It's not really about order. It's really actually about corruption and disorder is what most of those laws are about. Because they don't further the electric vehicle industry. All they do is shift money from one group to another. And theft is not a form of order, biblically. But we're, so, but we're deceived and we think that it is. We, right. we don't call it theft. We, you know, we call it debt forgiveness and so forth. But if you have an evolutionary mindset, you think that order is something that spontaneously arises out of disorder. Right. If you have a Christian mindset, you have to say that order is something that is preexistent and must be established upon disorder. It doesn't work the other way around. Must be reestablished, right? Right, right. That and and that the the natural way that a sinful world goes is it's in decay. It's going towards disorder. And if you've got an evolutionary mindset, you just think that order is something that's going to happen there. And so that's going to have consequences in how you think about economics. Right. When they in the arc of history, right, the arc of history bends towards whatever the the liberal favorite thing is because right. of that mindset. It, and, and that's I mean, it's at the heart of a Marxist mindset that you think that order is something that arises out of disorder. It arises out of these periodic conflicts in history. And that's not the that's not the Christian view of history. It's not the Christian view of economics. And it's not the real view of history. If you and actually it, study history, it just doesn't work that way. No, it doesn't. But but if you have this as your if you've got a different philosophical mindset if you if you don't begin with the theology of God is a God of order and sin introduced disorder and God is reestablishing order through Christ then you you can make up anything you want if you think that order is something that is okay yeah it, it's good but it's just going to spontaneously arise well you can you can shape order to be whatever you want it to be in order to satisfy any particular sins that you'd like to protect Right. And you can build the world and you can build structures around that. And they're all flimsy. It's all going to fall apart because it's all fake. Right. But but like Joshua was saying, there is a sense in which they think they're establishing order. It's just all – it's it's all wrong all the way down. Well, part of it is that they – because they reject there as a god, they say that they are the god of order. So when they – when California says, you know, 75 percent or whatever it was that – will be electric vehicles by 2030. They believe that order will come by their fiat because they believe they're God. And so, I mean, that kind of ties into that same philosophy. That's not different than what you're saying. That's just an aspect of what you're saying is that they have deceived themselves into thinking that they can actually dictate and cause the world to conform to their will as opposed to having to do work to cause the world to conform to their will. And that's the best of them. That's the be the, that's sure. the ones who still have some sentiment that order is good, as opposed to those who are just like, yay chaos. Sure.
And I'm talking about the ones that are actually in office and stuff, because to be in right. office means you have some sense. But if you're going to pass a law, you have some sense that order is good. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at the poor third world countries where they are characterized by chaos, but they also are, often they have a ton of laws that people just ignore. And so they have where people are trying to impose order in some fashion, but it's it's something where they're just they're just making statements, but no one no one's following those. Right. And they make statements that they know nobody is going to follow and and they accept that that the statements they're making are meaningless, but yet at the same time they act like they have great meaning. And that that's kind of the definition of lawlessness, right? Is that that you can't have order without law, that the two go together because it is law that dictates what the order should be. And so when you remove law, then you inherently become disorderly. It's important to recognize this. When you reject law, you are also rejecting order because law and order go together. And when you reject order, it always is an assault on love. Because if you reject order, if you reject law, then in the end, what you're always going to do is start to hate your neighbor. You're always going to mistreat your neighbor. You're always going to destroy your neighbor. You're always always going to put your effort towards protecting yourself against your neighbor. When I look at the person that's a member of our church that's in Nigeria, he spends uh, 40% of his income protecting himself. Because like that's physically he, protecting. Physically protecting, protecting his house, protecting and, and dealing with theft and dealing with all kinds of other things that he has to do because it's a lawless society. And so nobody cares about each other. I mean, and even family members steal from him. I mean, you know, family members in his wife's family. And so it's a big problem. And we just have to recognize this is always the way that it works. We think, oh, yeah, we can just go do whatever we want when there's no law. When there's no law, what it means is that everybody hates each other and everybody has to put their energy towards protection and to, to it increases their or it decreases their productivity in an enormous way. And we just don't realize that because we live in a fairly ordered society, but we're also rapidly rejecting order, which is also going to rapidly impoverish us because you can't reject, you can't have wealth unless you have order. And it's important, I think, as you say that to understand and make a distinction between what we think of as law and order and the way scripture defines law and order. Because today we're, we're so used to like the idea of sort of the over-regulated state, and we're headed more towards where you make a million different regulations and a million different rules. Whereas when you look at Scripture, Scripture gives law like in case law. And it gives law, in, and, and, the, and when you give law in case law, the purpose of it is for people to be able to think and understand principles under how they should, like you talked about, how you can love one another. And it actually gives them freedom to do many things but it can, helps them think of, if I do these different things, how should I love my neighbor? How should I deal with these different things? And it's massively different. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like you can't kill this person. You can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. You can't have a weapon. You can't have. It's man is made in the image of God. And it's teaching you fundamental. There's a huge difference between it's wrong to kill someone. And man is made in the image of God. Therefore, life should be treasured and protected. Those are two massively different things because one of them is just a regulation and the other one is a way to think about life and a way to think about yourself and others that allows you to structure how you're going to live and a way that you can live with others. And we have to recognize that the regulatory state that we have is lawlessness. It is not lawful. 
we pass all these laws to create a system that is lawless. Let me explain. For instance, in the, the 80s, was it the 80s or the 90s, somewhere a long time ago, I had a farm where I had migrant workers living on it. If you had migrant working, and I'm sure it hasn't changed, if you had migrant workers living on your farm, the laws were written that it was impossible not to break the law because there's a law that says you have to do X and there's a law that says you can't do X. So anytime they want, because of the regulatory state, they can walk in and they can fine you anytime they want. That is lawless. It's tyranny as well. It's tyranny as well. But it's lawless because there is no, when the laws contradict each other, it is inherently lawless because it says that the laws aren't laws. And what that means is you've now shifted the laws from the law books to the, to the person who's enforcing the law, which, like you said, is right. tyranny. But you look, and we can see this happening in our government right now. I mean, President Biden takes classified documents as the non-president. President Trump takes them as a president. There's plenty of evidence with Clinton and other things that, that you basically can't charge a president with taking classified documents because they're his documents, is what the way the law reads. But they say they can go after him, but they don't go after President Biden. Well, wait a second. None of that matches the law. But it has nothing to do with law. We're a lawless country. So they just make things up and they just will apply laws that don't apply and nobody says that there needs to be order to law. And so we have this form of being lawful because we have so many regulations and so many laws, but we're a very lawless country. Right. And this is why, I mean, and so the great lie is that God's law is this oppressive regulative thing that crushes you. And understand, you're talking about salvation. Sure, it brings you to a point that you can't fulfill it and keep it. But God's law and how you live in a society actually gives freedom. It actually allows people to be free because it structures it so they can go and they can say, this is how I should love my neighbor. This is where my neighbor's not loving me. It allows you to argue about it. It allows you to think about it. It allows you and to have a structured way. And this is the whole thing of what order is, is it structures it so you can actually build a society. You can actually build a culture where, like you said, love where you can actually ask the question, am I loving my neighbor? Am I loving them? And am I behaving toward them in a way that I can argue and explain to someone else? Not did I follow, you know, statute 453B7C, which is contradicted by, you know, right. 10 other ones out there that are written by different agencies that have no, you know, I mean, this is this is the and issue. And there's no obligation to feel like the, the, the law has to be internally harmonizable as opposed to God's law is harmonizable. And that's a huge difference because you can only have law if you can harmonize all the laws. If you can't harmonize the law, it's lawlessness. Yeah, because the order is not just arbitrary. It's not just order for order's sake or order to meet someone's, you know, to meet someone's arbitrary standard, but that there is a, you know, timeless standard, cross-cultural, um, you know, from God, uh, and it's not it's not revealed in complete detail. It's something we have to use discernment to figure out. Um, and it's a it's an order that allows freedom to different. You know, each of us as individuals have freedom that we're supposed to obey God, but that there's ways that no one can make us do certain things that we have a duty to do. But we we have the freedom to that we need to choose the right thing. And, and uh, churches and families have have freedom that they are the ones who are supposed to be taking dominion, and they're given the freedom to do that. 
um, where um, they also have the ability to make mistakes. So there is that freedom in the order. And you're you're not just saying how much you know how much can we can the government manipulate people or coerce people into doing um, that's not their place to do either because there's you know they're given a certain sphere they're supposed to be you know picturing God in certain ways but it's not it's not a full picture where they're you know sovereign over every everything there's 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 an order of who has authority over what I mean that's yeah when you talk about that right it. You look at the the huge advancement that happened after the 17th century or 18th century. A lot of that happens because people stop thinking of the divine right of kings, that basically kings sit in the place of God. And once you reset so that you don't think that kings sit in the place of God, which the American Revolution was probably the big reset in the history of the world, of that thought process, although it happened earlier in the English Civil Wars and things, but ignoring all those details... (laughs) Although maybe we shouldn't ignore them. We can make this a five-hour podcast. Um, ignoring all those details, that once you once you get that, that's what really frees up so that you can actually have prosperity and that you actually start to see where all of a sudden it's not arbitrarily that whatever the king says is what God says, which is what people were viewing before that. And so then all of a sudden that gives you the ability to be a lot more productive. And you don't see the the rapid increase in productivity until that happens because that has to be put into order. Right, because you have very ordered societies in certain ways like, you know, the, the caste system in India where you know exactly what you have to do because it's what your father did. You know, he shoveled elephant dung, you shove elephant dung. But there's that's also very restrictive in, you know, the different gifts that people are given and the ability to actually advance uh, culture. Um, there's, it's a real limiting factor. Right. And I mean, and I think that's, I mean, we're probably saying this, but we should be really explicit. What we're saying is, is God didn't, and Jonathan said it, I think multiple times, God did not just come to establish any order. He right. came to establish his order. And it, and this is the sort of thing where anytime you've ever been in a space where, it, or if you yourself know, if you have skill in a certain area, there are things where you can't do them in a different way. You don't have freedom to just do whatever you want. You're like, if I do it this way, it won't work. And somebody also come in, and this is, this or is why it will take we, 10 times longer or whatever. Right. Because there's a, frequently it's efficiency and not just right. won't work. But. but this is why we hate mindless government regulation is because there's times where they just come in and they just say, do it this way. And you go, but that, that, that makes no sense that you don't understand. And there's this part of it where, I mean, God is coming in and going, I'm not talking about, like you said, with the caste system. He's not coming in and going, arrange your society by shirt color. You know, I mean, which is, I mean, effectively, the caste system is just, it's an arbitrary arrangement for the benefit of specific people. And they're saying it's, like you said, it's very structured. And God's saying, no, I actually have a way to think about the world. I have a way to think about all of these things. And it glorifies me to impose this order on the world. And so, I mean, I think we're kind of saying this, but you need to understand this as you go is order isn't, order isn't just what you want to do that makes sense to you. It's why we say that that you know that scripture talks about your mind being conformed, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed. Or may this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. There are these verses where literally it's talking about God's word. The point of it is to change the way you think so that you think the way God thinks and his order goes forth in the world. Because he's ordering his kingdom. And even when you look at like the caste system, you have to recognize that there's huge disorder, even though the most visible thing is the caste system if you go to India and you say, wow, they've got this order. 
it's really underlying huge disorders, like unbelievably huge disorders that that it's easy to see one area ordered and think that this means the society's ordered, but the society isn't ordered at all. Not in the the significant ways, not in the ways that align up with God. Right. I mean, for instance, in Proverbs 13, 22 through 24, it says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Most food is in the fallow ground of the poor, and for the lack of justice there is waste. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. You can see in the caste system, the caste system is set up so that nobody can leave an inheritance to their children's children. If you're a shoveler of dung, you live you know, meal by meal, there's no way to do an inheritance. You're in that society. You're fixed. Your grandchildren will be in that society. That's it. You're there. And so it's very much against what God says. Here's the order I establish. A father should leave an inheritance to his children's children. Now, our society is fighting against that in a different way through taxes to make that impossible through through you know our healthcare system and through other means that we're doing to make sure that nobody leaves an inheritance so we can look at India and go, oh, look at their caste system. It's terrible, but we're attacking it just in different ways. But the same with much food is in the fallow ground of the poor. But for lack of justice, there is waste. When your system isn't just, then people stop planting because why would you plant if it's just going to be taken away from you? Why would you raise crops if you know that if because the, the FDA inspector doesn't like you, that you're going to get a $20,000 fine because you have a migrant living on your property that you need to harvest the food. Well, you just don't do it. And so all of a sudden, you create poverty because of disorder. And so it's really important to recognize this because the world is has plenty. The problem isn't how God created the world. The problem is that man has put such disorder in it that that, you know, what, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, this continent could only hold like 100,000 people and they had starvation constantly. And now we bring order to it and all of a sudden it's supporting 330 million and it's sending food overseas because that's all the difference in order. The problem is not what creation can provide. The problem is that our disorder makes it so that creation can't provide. Right. I mean, when we did the episode on total depravity, we talked about how that there are different sins and the different sins are constrained. But we talked about how lust of the flesh would cause a person to just consume whatever they had upon their own lusts. And so like the person who's an out who wants to drink, he would just go and drink until he can do nothing else. And it's important to, th I mean, and we, and God has even set it up. So those sins are at odds with one another. So that like, we talked about how his pride of life will war against that, but we need to understand that that's what sin is. Sin is that type of disorder. It is the picture of going, don't plant and don't think about a month from now. Don't think about a year from now. Don't think about increasing it. It's just, are, is there food to eat? Eat it. Consume it. Take it upon my own lust. Have these desires. I mean, sin is, man being enslaved to sin is that disorder. And it's disorder at every single level. It's, it is ordered towards fulfilling the lust of man's desires. And I think, and there's this part of it where we don't realize that that is the, how that disorder manifests itself in the world and that it manifests itself at every single level. There's nowhere that's free from man wanting to do those things and that Christ is literally at odds in every way with that disorder. Everything he's doing is to destroy that disorder. And like you said, return it over so that there actually is a, rest 
a restoration of the original order from the beginning. So when Paul says that the wages of sin is death, you know, he's 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 compressing a lot there. Right. There there is a lot that's between sin and death and all, everything you've been talking about is disorder. Right. That that anytime man is sinning, one of the products of that sin is disorder in the world and that that's what Christ is waging war against and the last enemy will be death. You know, the last thing that ends is death. Right. But in the end the the yes, the work of sin is to kill is to kill and the work of Christ is to cause life. And so I mean, and I think there's just this part of it where because we're so familiar with the work of Christ, we assume that that's just like a fundamental part of the world. You know, I mean, we assume that 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 somehow you don't actually that sin isn't really that sin. We don't actually believe that sin causes death because we've actually seen how because God has already done so much to constrain sin that we actually believe that sin actually isn't as bad as it is. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but we actually don't hold sin to be as dangerous as it is. And what we're trying to do in this podcast is kind of push that up and get people to realize that every bit of disorder in the world is caused by sin, that in fact that is what the fight is about. The reason that I wanted to do the podcast is because the church has to get into the fight, and I think the church has said it's really not our fight. But that's saying that the church is not the body of Christ because this is what Christ came to do. He came to establish order. He came to order his kingdom. And his kingdom covers all things. He has all authority. And as kings and priests of Christ, like it says in Revelation 1, as kings and priests, it means we have a duty to work to establish order in the culture. And, of course, if we don't bother to establish order in the church, we will never establish it in the culture. So I'm not saying that judgment doesn't begin first in the house of God. Clearly it does. But we should recognize that, that that's really what we're supposed to be shooting for. And previous generations understood this. They understood that, that part of the responsibility of the church was to order the culture and order the society. And we've just completely lost that. And we've turned it on its head to say that the society should order the church and, and you know, seeker-sensitive movement. Let's go out and find out what the society wants, and that will drive the order of the church. That's kind of antithetical to Christ. That's the opposite of what Christ came to do. And this is part of the appeal of uh, like Jordan Peterson, not to rehash the whole episode we, we did on him. Um, but that's one of his big messages is bringing is bringing order, and it's him, you know, a non-Christian with a worldview that in many ways is opposed to Christianity. But he's the one who's out there saying bring order, and it's something that you know there's some people that are that are looking for that, and that they recognize that their lives are out of order and they need help to get them back into order. So let me ask a question that I think dovetails with that observation God takes Israel out of Egypt he takes a, a nation of slaves out of Egypt in the wilderness he gives them law because when you get to the promised land where everything's great and you're going to get all this stuff that I give you houses and vineyards etc here's how you go about dispute resolution here's what you do with murder etc you know here's here's a law for you and yet that that situation doesn't bring about the sort of order that we're looking for or the sort of order that we say Isaiah is prophesying when the Prince of Peace enters the world and establishes a kingdom of which there will be no end and brings order. What's different? You know, I mean, it, it was the law of God. We, we have a high view of the law of God, 
but why did that not get us where we need to be? So, I mean, part of it is to remember what happens in the wilderness. What happens in the wilderness is, you know, Aaron and Miriam say, does God just speak to Moses, right? And Korah says, did God just speak to Moses? And all these are rebellion against order. And they kept rebelling against order and rebelling against order and rebelling against order. And what made them orderly after the 40 years was God's judgment repeatedly. He scourged them over and over and over again so that by the time that they come and they confront Agabashan and they, they, they conquer these giants, which they were afraid to do 38 years before, they go in and conquer them. But it's not because they had the law. They had the law 38 years before. What was different is that they had received the scourging of God so that they obeyed the law and they did the things of the law. Then they go into the promised land where God says, now fathers teach the law to their children. They forgot who God was, right? Judges 2.9. They forgot who God was and what he had done in the generation after Joshua. And so because they forgot who God was, the things don't produce productivity. And so they have the same problem and they go back to the same thing and they go back to slavery because they lost the order because there was nothing to maintain the order because they didn't have a heart in them to obey God. Christ comes and he sends his spirit so that we have a heart in us to obey God. That's the only reason that we can establish order is you either have to be constantly scourged that you have no choice except to obey him because you're afraid not to, which is basically where Israel was when it went into the promised land, or you have a spirit that gives you a spirit and a heart to obey, which is the promise of the new covenant. You said, or you said something in there about maintaining order, and that's helpful to think about because Christ is establishing order. God established order with the law, but it wasn't maintained by the people. They right. couldn't do it. And now Christ comes and puts a new heart in, and it's possible to maintain order. Maintain and establish it, reestablish right. it, without God's constant scourging, which is how he got order in the promised land to begin with. That's but, how they conquer the promised land. The maintenance of order, that's where... That's where the Christian picture offers something Jordan Peterson can't. Right. I mean, at best he can do is say, make your bed, but you're not going to build a generation that you're not going to build the next generation on Jordan Peterson principles. It's just not going to work. There will be no advancement because what's, what's the advancement of that? The advancement of that is he's basically saying, go back to the orders of your parents, the order of your parents, which actually went back to more of having a, the United States having a Christian worldview is why they said you make your bed. And then all of a sudden it's just go back to the worldview of your parents where they had lost the underlying rule, which is why it went to where it did after the sixties. It's because they lost the principles that they were basing those rules on and reestablishing the rules. All it means is the next generation will lose them again because there's nothing to say. This is why it's right. This is why the order matters. All he's saying is be a pragmatist. Pragmatism says, if you have order in your life, you'll have a better life. Well, that's no advancement. That is, at best, holding holding the line. And in the end, you won't hold the line because the next generation will go, well, they did this. They can't tell me why. They just say it works. So let me try it without it. And then they find out, wait a second, it doesn't work. And then maybe they'll go back to it. And a new Jordan Peterson, you know, somebody else, Joe Bob or something will show up 30 years from now and they'll go, oh, look, he's brilliant. And all he'll do is reestablish the order of the previous generation. It's so rare to be around when prophecy is spoken. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we I said maybe. I said maybe. <laughs> but the church has lost its responsibility because its responsibility is to make people see 
and not just to say, hey, this will work, but actually make them see. Proverbs 4, 18 and 19 says, but the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines br ever brighter unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. The reality is that the just, it is, it's like a shining sun. It actually, we are the light of the world. We actually have an influence. And when you walk in the righteousness, when you walk in God's order, that people say, wait a second, I should do that. That works. And there's a basis for why it works, as opposed to Jordan Peterson just goes, hey, it's better than what you're doing now. You're desperate. Try this. Well, that's not really a solution that actually moves forward or causes any advancement. But Jordan Peterson doesn't really believe in advancement. He just believes in kind of hanging on. Really has a lot to say about the weakness of the church. Because it's the just that are supposed to be like the shining sun. As it says in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The idea of the church is we're supposed to be the light. They're stumbling in darkness. We see all the darkness that they're stumbling in right now that they can't tell the difference between a boy and a girl. How dark does it have to be for you not to be able to tell the difference between a boy and a girl? Well, we're the light of the world. The church is. If the world is that in that darkness, how much light are we shedding forth? How much light are we pushing out? And the answer has to be none. Basically, none, no light is coming from the church in America. And we should recognize that and recognize the level of sin and recognize that, of course, the world, America, is going to decay, not because of some ridiculous eschatology that says God hates the world and he's trying to make it worse, which is basically dispensational eschatology. It's He hates his bride is the root of dispensational eschatology, a ridiculous position, very unchristian. And yet, at the same time, we turn around and we say everything's getting worse, and we don't go, wait a second, it's our sin that's causing it. Instead, we want to blame it on Christ. It's not Christ's fault. It's our fault. We've been given the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been made the light of the world, and yet the whole world's stumbling in darkness, and we go, it's God's fault. No, it's not. As the light of the world, when we see our justice system decaying, we should not just go, why is the justice system decaying? We should say, do we have justice in our churches? Because if we don't have justice in the churches, if we're not shining forth light from the churches, there won't be justice in the culture. And so we're supposed to be causing his kingdom to come into order, which means that, that the kingdoms of the earth are supposed to be more just. And they advanced in judge, justice over the last 2,000 years in huge ways, enormous ways, unbelievable advances. And it was all because of the church. It was all because... The church said things have to be just. They have to be orderly. You have to have witnesses. There's a process. But now we're, we're losing all that, and we're ignoring it, and it starts with the church. Most churches don't believe that they have any responsibility to be just. When they do church discipline, when they, they either ignore sin, they're biased towards sin, they have all these problems. Instead of going, justice really matters because the society won't be just unless the church is shining forth what it looks like to be just so that the society doesn't walk in darkness and stumble all over the place. And they still have the, the laws that were put in place that they don't even understand why they were in place because we're just like Jordan Peterson in our legal system in the sense of saying, just go back to what the fathers did when you have no idea why they did it. The church needs to start to be just so it can explain and show to the world there's real principles here, real principles as to why this is just. 
And if you want to define justice in the circum in the in in a church context, basically what you're saying is that justice is the right way of dealing with the sin of the congregants. Right. It's not coming to the right conclusion. It's dealing with the situation rightly, because God doesn't say we're going to always get the the conclusion right. What He says is, "I've given you a process," and so justice is very process based which our, our legal system has remnants of that, but they're decaying very rapidly in our justice system. You know, even we did a podcast on, on uh, plea bargains, and it's like 98%. Well, that doesn't come from the church. There's no plea bargains in the church. That's the, the world no looking church, to itself. No plea bargains whoa, 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 in the Bible. Whoa. There's no plea by bargains in the Bible. There's lots of but, plea bargains yeah, in yeah, the church. If, if you, if I you, hope not, but I, you're probably right. No, they, I mean, because in the end, this is what it is. When someone finds someone in sin— you just—it's a plea bargain. You it's, got enough tears to make this go away, right? You're not, are we, we going to bring this before the church. the church in the end? I mean, the church has adopted plea bargains long because in, otherwise things would be brought Fair before enough. the church. And I think this—this is—I mean, no fault divorce is not. You know, I mean, is this? It's effectively they're effectively plea bargaining because the church is saying we don't want to look at these people and say, is are either one of them believers? And so instead, let's just let's just skip the whole process. Or, or saying it's hard work to to walk these people through the counseling that it would take to restore harmony in this marriage. It would just be easier if we could just say, "All right, nobody's at fault here. Just go your separate ways." Right. That's easy. That's that's the easy path. It's a plea bargain. And I, yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying about it being a plea bargain. I think that in a lot of cases. You know, churches, they just go, well, we're at odds. You should leave. Well, right. that's really where you get no-fault divorce, right? That's the right. same picture is that we don't have to deal with the situation. We won't worry about it. As opposed to going, no, let's – if there's sin here, we need to deal with the sin. Right. And as long as you're just saying, well, it's better just to go our own ways and not deal with the sin, you're very unjust and you're very contrary because Christ didn't come just to establish order. He came to ju establish judgment and justice too, is what it says in Isaiah 6. We don't actually believe that the church, the world learned justice from the church. We don't actually believe that. We think that like they already had justice, that God constrains sin and he's always constrained sin. But if you actually want to talk about justice, where justice is actually a principle of that that sin was dealt with in a way so that this person's rights were maintained, so that this person's rights were maintained, so that there were there was a process which could be repeated, which could be found out. When you actually get down to justice, that only comes from God's law. There's pragmatic ways of dealing with things, but they're not just. And you can actually, and if you actually get down to justice, it came from God's word. It came from Him. It came from His truth. And there's no replacement for that. It's important to recognize that. I mean, most justice, even as it got better, right? A lot of justice came down to there's an important guy, and what does he think, right? He likes this guy. He doesn't like that guy. Guess who gets killed? Guess who you decide that this is what justice is? And we're just rapidly moving back in that same direction. I mean, like as a nation, we're rapidly moving back in that same direction. And the church needs to be going, that's wrong. That's sinful. But if you have somebody that you like and you do different discipline on them than you do on somebody who you don't like, 
That's where the state learned it. And the churches do this all the time. You go after the weak. You don't, you go after the people that you don't like. You go after the people that, that may not have money to give offerings. And then we turn around and say our justice system is bought and paid for. Well, yeah, of course it is. Because that's what the church does. Or you pick a system where you just say, hey, nothing has to be dealt with. Right. You're, you're, we just, we're not going to acknowledge that there's sin in the congregation that needs to be publicly dealt with, that, that the church doesn't have a responsibility to say anything about it. And then you get just a, a rapid increase in the amount of disorder that you're you allowing into the church. Exactly. You know, you, you get. <laughs> I was just cutting to the chase, but anyway. Well, you get San Francisco, you get Portland, but you, you, you get, a, you know, you get a juvenile system where you don't actually care about the people. You're just. You're you're trying to maintain a system of order by disavowing that there's any disorder underneath that actually has to be dealt with. Right. The reason I said San Francisco is because San Francisco has now reached the point where theft, shoplifting, assault, uh, you know, defecating on the street, none of these things are crimes. That the only crimes they'll deal with are basically things like murder and rape. Well, that's basically what most churches are in America. It has to be really bad before the church will go, we actually have to do something. San Francisco is the picture of the modern American church. And that's that should horrify us and because it is our responsibility. And that should horrify us because that's the direction most churches go is it has to be really bad before it reaches the point where we go, we're going to actually do discipline. So how are we supposed to think about this in light of what Isaiah prophesied in that Christ is actually going to come and establish order if we're looking at things as just decaying. How's it, how is the church supposed to think about that? I mean, you know. Well, sometimes he just comes in and goes, wipe the slate clean and bring in new people. It has happened before and we shouldn't be surprised if it happens again. We're obviously in a nation that's under the judgment of God. But ignoring that, that real possibility the other thing is churches actually need to start taking discipline seriously. They need to actually, and not just according to their rules, right? It says in Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, obviously, the church doesn't wield the sword. But the rules for justice are the same. The rules for justice are you have to have two or three witnesses. Now most court cases, you know, I know somebody that, that went in and said, no, I'd never convict on one person. Well, sorry, you can't sit on the jury then. This is where we've gotten, but that's also where most churches are. They don't actually demand evidence. They don't actually say, are there two or three witnesses? They don't care if somebody lies about something. Instead of going, oh, you lied about that, so you lied to try to get that person excommunicated or to try to get him not to be excommunicated, so now you get excommunicated. If the church started to do that, then 
we would shine forth light and darkness flees before light. It doesn't work the other way. And so the problem is the reason the decay is that the church needs to repent. And so God is increasing his order. There will be no end to that increase of order, but that's all over the world. And that doesn't mean right now in America that we're, yeah, we're doing the right thing. There are other places in the world where order is increasing, but right now order is decreasing and it's because the church is walking in darkness and it's causing the society to walk in darkness. And we think about it and perjury is not considered a big deal at all. And we should end our court system. How often do they prosecute perjury? Almost never. And God has it as a really serious thing, right? You're trying to lie about somebody committing murder. Guess what? You're to be put to death. And we should just recognize that God has set what the process of justice is. And churches really need to embrace that process if we want justice in our society. It has to start in the church. I mean, one of the things that when you were reading that passage, it said that, you know, what happens is, is that you put the evil out from among you and everyone hears and fears. You know, and there's this part of it where you were talking before about Israel going into the promised land, how that they were scourged by God. And what we've forgotten is just that God has not, that people have not fundamentally changed. Right. Either either you judge yourself, either you as a nation judge yourself, and you scourge when someone does sin, you scourge them, you punish them, you deal with them, or God's going to come and he's going to scourge you. Scripture where it says if you had judged yourself, you wouldn't need to be judged. I mean, there's this part of it where what we've done is we've said we're not going to judge sin. We're not going to deal with it. We're not going to cause other people to fear. We actually pretend, I mean, we've actually bought the lie that people are good. And I mean, and, and all evidence not in the Not in theory, just in practice. Right, exactly. And which is like the, the, the worst place to hold it. Right. <laughs> And I mean, yeah, there's another verse in Exodus 23, 6. You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Well, we do this all the time in churches. If you're of the favored class in churches, the justice is different than if you're in the not favored class. Well, this is horrible because then we turn around and go, oh, the poor church is getting persecuted. The people don't like us. Well, of course, you said that you could abuse people that you don't like. So don't turn around and go, why did those old ladies that were protesting at the at the, the homosexual pride parade, why did they get arrested? Well, you said if you don't like somebody, then go after them. That's what the church says all the time. And so then it turns around and complains about it. The church has to establish rules of justice and has to follow the rules of justice. And then it will become a holy body. And as a holy body, it will shine forth light and the world will see it. And the world will walk by that light because they'll be ashamed of the other choices. Again, we look back and we see the Sabbath day it wasn't that long ago that people obeyed the Sabbath day. Why'd they obey it? Because everybody was Christians? No, they obeyed it because the church said, this is what God said. This is how God ordered time. The church has now said God didn't order time. How dare God tell us what time to use? And how God to wants us to watch sports. Six. Yeah, we're supposed to watch football on Sunday afternoons. How dare God tell us? Well, that's saying, how dare God say, I'm a God of order. Well, no, he has the right to do that. And we know in times past, it hasn't been that long. And it won't be that long before God fixes it, either by destroying us, by sending in the Chinese or whatever to conquer us, or that there'll be a revival in the church. It's not going to happen that long because God will cause his order to increase. And so we should take that as a warning. Are we going to repent or are we going to continue in the path that we're going? Because God will establish his order. He sent his son to die to establish his order. He will cause it to happen. That's what I was angling for earlier with the question. 
of how's the church supposed to think about this when we look and we see decay and not growth? What is our expectation? And because there's a very pessimistic way of looking at that and saying, maybe Isaiah wasn't right. Maybe Christ isn't actually going to establish order, which would be just. But it says he rules with a rod I know, of iron. It would be blasphemy. So, you know, it's not that. If, if you don't believe that God will come and will establish, will reestablish order, you, you have no faith. Because, I mean, and, and I don't mean when he comes, like he'll come in the rapture, or he'll come down to earth and change things. But, like, just like whenever Babylon was sent into Judah to take captives out, that was God coming in to reestablish order and to judge his people. And so God's saying, if you won't uphold these things, I will take you into a foreign country. I will scourge you. I will bring you into subjection to someone else. And and the order increased from that. God actually caused an increase in order by doing that. And I think there's a part of it where if we don't actually believe that, you have no faith. You should you shouldn't believe you shouldn't think that you believe God. And even with that, when he sends them in, he goes, Look, I'm gonna turn it over to wild beasts. Hyenas and stuff are gonna be here because they have more order than Israel or than Judah did at the time. We just need to recognize what God's doing. And so when we look and we say, Jesus Christ is ruling with a rod of iron. Well, you don't rule with a rod of iron unless at case at times you break things. So if everything is always increasing at all times, that's not you don't rule with a rod of iron. You rule with a rod of iron when you're going to move it forward just like you did in the wilderness, but it means there'll be times where people rebel. And then you swing your rod of iron and you crush things and you break things. And, Christ and they is see ruling, it, they hear in fear. And they hear in fear. <laughs> and Christ is ruling with a rod of iron. And we pretend like, yeah, we can just do these things and Christ won't do anything. Well, no, that's, that's faithless. You know, we talked about how the church, you know, when we look at our justice, that that we need to get that in order, but that starts in the church. Another thing is how you deal with the poor. The world doesn't understand the obligation to the weak. The world thinks that that the strong should take advantage of the weak, and we act like that's not true. We act like we're such a benevolent people, but the reality is our government system and our welfare system is about taking advantage of the weak. The Bible says do not – or it says open your hand wide to the poor, meaning that you help people when they're in distress and you try to get them out of poverty. Our helping the weak is let's keep them in poverty. Let's keep them on drugs. Let's keep them in a situation where that situation is going to destroy the generation after that and the generation after that and the generation after that. So we buy their votes. That's what our system is. It's as contrary to what God says that we're supposed to do to the poor as possible. But the church doesn't care about the poor either in general. The church in America does very little for the poor. We go, oh, the government's taking care of it. The government's making them slaves of the government. And how much do we do for the poor? I mean, and what the church needs to do for the poor is teach them the law of God. Teach them that God expects them to work, that God expects them to do these things. That God expect, I mean, because there is a part of it where, you know, without that, we've effectively created like a welfare-based caste system. And so we've— like Cleaning we've, laws versus— versus the welfare laws in the United States. The gleaning laws are you have to make it available so that there's ways that they can provide for themselves. The welfare state in America is you send them a check so that they can just sit around and do nothing. One dehumanizes and the other makes them, they, you're treating them like people that have agency, that have the decisions to make and can make the decisions that they suffer the consequences of their sin, but there's an opportunity to escape the consequences of their sin or their poverty. And, and we look and we go, 
yeah, this is so benevolent and so kind to the poor. It has nothing to do with helping the poor. Nothing whatsoever, our welfare system. It is evil and it is destructive to the poor and has been since, since you know, Johnson really you know, expanded it. Isaiah 10 uh, bears on this topic. Uh, verses 1 through 4. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune, which they have prescribed, to rob the needy of justice, and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. What will you do in the day of punishment, and in the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your glory? Without me, they shall bow down among the prisoners, and they shall fall among the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And there you have a rebuke of, for those who who uh, deprive the poor of what is right and what order would uh, would 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 give to them. Right, God. God gives plenty to some people so that they can help the weak. And we think in our society that God gives plenty to some people so that they can take advantage of the weak. And then we complain about the systems that we put in place that are ungodly and unrighteous that are to try to balance that somewhat, you know, like unions and things like that, where we should recognize that the initial problem is that there's not this attitude that you're supposed to help those that are in, in lesser circumstances that you have an obligation for the greater to bless the lesser. And those who, who God has blessed, right, that, that they're to help those who, who aren't as fortunate. And we've lost that in the church, right? The church is all about let's collect money for the church. I remember you know, growing up going to Roman Catholic churches where sometimes they'd have five offerings. And they're say they're doing it for the, they're not doing it for the poor they're doing it so that the church gets rich and you look at the Reformation you look at how much the Roman Catholic Church had and that they were just collecting money for themselves and now you look at the church in 2023 in America and it's no different it's the same thing they're trying to see how much money they can collect for themselves and they don't care about the poor they don't care about the weak they don't care about the ones that God says I will destroy Israel because they didn't care about the weak. And then we turn around and we expect the government to do it. The government's not doing it. The government could care less about the weak. They don't look at them and say these are made in the image of God. They look at them and say these are voters and we can get power from them. And, you know, and not to discount that, um, but you can also look at our society and see, you know, how much Christianity has affected it. You know, this, this is ignoring abortion for a second, which is a huge exception to this but you look at in so many ways how things are so much better than they used to be where in roman times they would leave just leave the babies out to die if they didn't want them and it was the christians who went and got them and took care of them you know you even have the catholic church with all its problems and yet it did do a lot of things to establish hospitals at certain times to care for people who otherwise might not have gotten uh, care for and now you have you know you can go to any hospital when you're sick and you'll get cared for even if you don't have a, a dollar um, and you know that is coming from Christianity, where it's not that we you know leave the weak behind, the weak die, the weak are are weeded out, the weak are you know lose out in the survival of the fittest. But it's the Christianity that says you actually need to value the weak and protect the weak. And where even some of the most perverse um, groups in America, you know, that are they're preying on the weak and, and they're claiming to help them, you know, saying these you know boys need to be girls and vice versa. But it's it's all in a um, even in some of the you know the victimhood stuff, it's 
Because in, in other times, if you're saying, I'm a victim, everyone needs to help me, they'll be like, great, die. We'll be stronger without you. And, and so this it, is Sparta. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, but, you know, the, the world has been Christianized in such a way that you can adopt the persona of being weak so that you can get sympathy and you can get help in ways that in other ages, you, that it just wouldn't have worked. Right. The issue isn't so much that the church didn't have influence because it did. It had huge influence. Right? You look at Islam and Islam has a requirement to, to do charity. Where did that come from? That came from Christianity. That certainly didn't come from Muhammad, except that he's hearing things from, you know, at, at the crossroads there. He's hearing things that are Christian ideas that he's taking. So all these things are coming from Christianity. The problem is, is that we just have the remnants and we're back to Jordan Peterson where we have the remnants to say this is why we should do it. But we don't have any constraints on who is the weak. We have no constraints on who is, you know, we say young man, well, you, you need welfare instead of saying you need to work. And so we've, we still have those remnants which are better than what it was before, but we're backsliding in the sense that, that the church isn't holding and saying, no, there is a standard for how you should treat the weak, how you should treat the poor. And that that standard is is how you treat them like humans, how you treat them like men and women that have real agency and real responsibility. And so it's it's the step back that's happening and not that the church didn't move forward, but now we're moving back. We, we look at these things and we say, okay, so that they're trying to help the weak. But we don't recognize if you don't help them and according to God's order, it actually becomes cruelty. It says in Proverbs ten twelve, a righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. So they look at it, and the people who are voting for these programs, they think that they're being kind. But then you go and deal with the people that they're quote-unquote being kind with, and they're actually being very cruel because they think they're being merciful. But unless you have God's order and God's understanding, that, that mercy is merciless. It just appears to be merciful which is why you can get them to say tax everybody and send money to these people and that we have all this debt and all these other things because we act like these things are merciful. But the reality is the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. You know, if you want to talk about the tender mercies of the wicked, again, this is another case where the church has culpability in this. And we've talked about this before with, say, charitable giving. And, and, and you think about organizations like VOM, and really all they're doing is they're selling you a feeling. Give us money, and you'll feel like you're doing some good in the world. And really, it's just being pocketed, and people are worse off because of what you've done. And the reason that the world is like that, the reason that we think that, that welfare systems work like that is because it starts with the church. It starts right. with, a you know, you do this sort of thing, and you can feel fine, and you can be absolved of your responsibility to actually deal with any real problems because you've given some money and somebody sold you a feeling and the government is just like, Hey, that works. We can do that too. Right. Instead of like what it actually says in Matthew 25, I was hungry and you fed me. Not I sent a check to some organization that said that they'd feed somebody in Africa. It's I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was, I was homeless and you took me in. Right. I mean, these things are hard to do because they're personal. But as soon as the church depersonalizes it, then the state can step in because it's really good at doing things that are depersonalized. I mean, and, and if you don't, I mean, if you're following along, you understand that the what we're talking about here is how benevolence is ordered matters. That it's that in the end, what we you can't just go writing a check. You can structure it so that writing a check is the same 
as people doing the work that God has given them to do. It doesn't mean that it's always wrong to give money, but there, but you can't change it so the system is built around that. You can't, because the system right now is ordered so that that is how benevolence is done. And God says, that's not how I structured it. That's not how I, how I have ordered it. I've ordered it so that my people do the work and they're actually connected to the work and they actually understand the work. And they, there's a part where you have responsibility you can't just foist it off on someone else and say that it's going to get done. And it's interesting because, like, we have a prosthetic clinic in Nigeria. And to get donations of used prosthesis, it's really hard because people go, we should just write a check. This is too weird that you'd actually have connection to the people. Right. And so, I mean, it makes it that it is this this boundary even about among people that that call themselves Christians that they go that's just too weird to actually have that no this is this is how it's supposed to work and they want this distance and this this it's about money and it's about your 501c3 and it's about how you funnel money through so that it's very difficult to work the system in any other way because churches aren't saying this is how it should work. Instead, they're saying just give us money and we'll take care of your responsibility. And it comes down to the detail because to make it financially viable, you can't just do it through money. I mean, in the end, you have to actually you have to actually build a supply chain that actually works in a real way, and you can't just fund that. I mean, it's just it's a yeah, it's the work actually has detail to it, and it requires a level of granularity, and you can't escape it. And the order of benevolence is really hard, right? Because you have open your hand wide to the poor. You have, you have, you know, he who won't work shall not eat, right? You have different requirements that cause any benevolence to do is actually very difficult to make sure you're doing it in righteousness. But if you just say, well, write a check and you're righteous, well, that, yeah, that's really simple. And it's also rejecting God's order because God gave real order on how you do things. And it's a lot harder than that. And we think benevolence is easy. You just write a check. Somebody's in need, you write them a check. No, that's not biblical benevolence. Biblical benevolence is trying to actually help the person so that they advance. Right. It's really easy to harm someone instead of helping them. It's really right. easy to, yeah, it's, it's very hard to actually help another person. But when you don't care about actually helping them, then the state can come in and do welfare checks because they don't care about helping it. So as we think of examples of where the church really needs to be shining light into society. It seems to me one of the most serious. I mean, I can think of other ones like the way we do education, the way we do authorities that, that you can easily do examples on those. But one that's probably the most serious in a lot of ways is how the church treats the family and how much that is destroying the families in America. You look at the destruction of family in America, that's probably the most stark thing that's happened over the last 70 years maybe 60 years. And that destruction is the hatred of children, so we murder 65 million babies. You look at the divorce rate. You look at the, the unbiblical structure of families. You look at, at the disintegration of family life. You just, the disintegration is the family as a unit that actually has meaning. I mean, all these things are just destroying us as a nation. I think a lot of these come back to the church, right? The church embraced things like age-segregated Sunday school so that you split the children from the parents and you never treat them like the parents actually have responsibility for the children. You split the wives from the husbands. All of a sudden, you put wives in authority over husbands. Well, that is completely out of order to put wives in authority over husbands. And that's even an example that's used in 1 Corinthians 14. 
for God is not the author of confusion, right? The opposite of order is confusion. The author of confusion, but of peace, is in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. And you look at that, and it says the law did this, that this is shameful, that this is, this is about confusion. And you look at all these things, and then you wonder why we're just the church is destroying families. Well, they want women to lead. Well, guess what? If you want women to lead, you are saying families should be destroyed. The society walks in the light that the church shines. And as soon as they say that a woman can be, you know, we have women bishops now and stuff in, in Methodist circles. And it's like, really, this is just so contrary to everything that the scriptures teach, everything that it says about the nature of Christ, the nature of the church. And when you get that disorder, it just destroys society. And our society is being destroyed from the church, starting with the church. Right. And the Southern Baptist Convention pushed Saddleback Church out because they were ordaining women. And people were like, I mean, and I'm glad they did. It was good that they did. But people actually acted like it was like this great stand that they took. Women being pastors is the last domino to fall in a long line of dominoes. I mean, like, you know, where the, the whole view of, like if, if women don't if women can't speak in church and they throw, when they have votes do they allow women to vote in the church over the authority of the church do they split the household of the churches are they doing all, I mean this stuff has been going on for a very long time this isn't like something new this isn't we're so far down the path of attacking and destroying the authority of the family of tearing the family apart but we're looking at this and going yeah we're really fighting really hard for the family or we're drawing distinctions women can't be pastors and it's like do you even understand the state of the church and the home? And I think the answer is no, we don't. And we're just destroying our families. I mean, it's just, it's just, you know, as a nation, and a nation cannot continue to exist when it destroys its families because its families are where the initial education comes from. It's where, it's where everything that is the building blocks of that community. So we look at our disintegration of community. And it starts with the church attacking families. And and if you, you put it in the context in the language of our podcast here, it's where a child learns order. A right. child learns a, a child comes into the world with no concept of order except the instincts that God has had nature impose on that child. That's all the child brings into the world. And then that child is given parents that give it order. And so, you know, you take one of those parents out, you take fathers out. And you know, just look at the statistics, the number of children who are born to into fatherless households. And and you think that that's not going to have long reaching effects on the nature of order when a child is not learning basic order from the beginning. I mean, we have we have no idea how serious that's gonna be. And and you know, Especially when you look at these societies where, and you look at, you know, Hillary Clinton about it takes a village. Well, a village doesn't impose order. A village doesn't deal with the details. And actually teaching order requires dealing with the details. And parents deal with the details. And, and as soon as you create the separation, as soon as you have children raised in childcare, which as soon as it becomes, as soon as you start to split the husband and wife, that's where you get childcare. And all of a sudden the children are being raised in childcare. Well, Childcare isn't about imposing order. Childcare is just about keeping enough order so that you survive to get rid of the kid at the end of the day. Well, that doesn't actually help them. It doesn't actually advance them. And so we've, you know, 
in our society, there'll be more and more decay of order because we've attacked the family. Earlier in the, the podcast, we were pretty hard on Jordan Peterson. And and actually, I don't blame Jordan Peterson for his popularity. No. You know, he's popular because there's a society where people are hungry for somebody to act like a father to them. And he's the only person that they can find on the internet who's willing to say things like a father would have said to them because they don't have their own fathers. That's why Jordan Peterson. And even popular. if they had a father, he wasn't out of, he didn't father them. You, That's you know the what problem. I mean, right? Yeah. Their father no. wasn't there in whatever sense there means. And we have uh, society has taught the fathers that they're not supposed to be fathers. They're not supposed to be telling the children because the children have to be independent. They have to do their own thing. They, all these things that are basically saying that you should not impose order on your children. Well, give me a break. That's how societies survive is by imposing order on their children. And so then the only order that gets imposed on the child is where the father or the mother is offended. That's the only order that gets imposed. Imposed is they're not saying this child needs to be orderly for the child's sake. It's that this child needs to be orderly so that they don't drive me nuts. Right. Smartphone controls. You know. but, but the elite, it's not true for the elite at all. They believe strongly. You look at Donald Trump and you're telling me with Donald Trump's children, he did not believe that they have to be orderly and they have to do what they're supposed to do when they're told to do. Guaranteed, all the elite do that. I'm not sure about President Biden. I'm not sure about <laughs> President Biden with Hunter. I think with Bo it was true, but I'm not sure with Hunter. But, but in general, the elite, the people that make it to that level, they have a recognition that they have to install order in their children. But then they push people, other people to not have order because they get real power from other people being disorderly. Right. And the church isn't rising up and saying, no, we need order because right. the church doesn't want to impose God's order on itself. I mean, how many churches teach that what women should be keepers at home? How many churches, I mean, like we talked about abortion, I mean, not abortion, we talked about divorce. How many, I mean, like divorce is, if you don't have if your church is not actively against, like to the point of church discipline, dealing with divorce, you hate children. You you you're creating fatherless. That's what I mean. In the end, if you if you have an attitude that people can get divorced and that the church has no opinion on it, that the church has nothing to say about it except we really hate this is happening. This is a really sad situation. If that we really oh this is terrible. We just we really wish this wasn't the case. If that's the church, if that's your church's position on it, you hate the family. You're not trying to constrain the family. You're not looking at them and going, you took an you, you took an oath. Right. If you're not saying in a, the case of a divorce, if both parents are members of the church, one of them will be excommunicated, if not both. That's what the church always needs to say. Because either there's evidence of adultery, which means the adulterer should be put out. If there's evidence that they're divorcing without adultery, that's sin. They need to be put out. And the church actually needs to say Divorce is serious. Right. You can't just play with it. God was very explicit about the grounds for divorce. That's his divorce is like murder, right? I mean, it's right. like violence. It's tearing apart something that he created. He joined right. them it's together. It's covering your garments in blood, as it says in Malachi. Right. And so, I mean, yeah, I mean, this. these are the—the the church has hated the family in a very real and visceral way for a very long period of time, and they act like they love it. And because we're saying that, that the order that God imposed, where God says— I made man and man in my image, male and female, I made them. That when they say that, when God said that, he is saying that men and women are different. And when the church starts to say that they're not different, that is a fundamental attack on order. 
the order from the beginning, right? The curse on women was their desire would be for their husband. They would want the position of their husband. They would want the authority that God gave their husband. When churches embrace that, they are, instead of undoing the curse, which is why the second Adam came, to undo the curse, they are actually enforcing the curse. So when all of a sudden you say, well, you know, the women should be the head of all the committees. The women should do this. They can't be a pastor, but they should do all these other leadership roles. You've already rejected the idea of what Christ came to do. He came to reestablish the order. And that means men have to have to get busy and they need to do the work and they need to not be lazy because that's the sin of men. But the church has to start holding men to not be lazy and it needs to start holding women to be in their proper place. Biblically ordered, which is where they will be happier. You look at the amount of drug use in churches, the amount of people that are on Valium and other drugs. I mean, it's just unbelievable in this country, the level of that. And why is that? It's because of disorder. It's because you're putting women in positions that God did not make them to be in. And that creates stress and that creates fears and that creates things that they're not prepared to deal with because they weren't created to deal with them. And then we turn around and say we're being loving towards them. We're not being loving towards them. We hate them. And when we attack the family like that, when we, when we pull women out of the role that they were created for, when we allow men not to take the role that they were created for and to do the work that they were created to do, what that always means is that the next generation won't be trained. And so what you see is further decay, right? Because it says in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. If instead of the wife being there and training the children and bringing them up, like it says in 1 Timothy 2, where they're not allowed to have authority over a man, but yet they'll be saved through childbearing. If they're not doing the things that they were created to do, and instead they're trying to do the things that they were not created to do, which is the role of men, then what happens is the people who lose the most are the children. When we go, oh, men shouldn't provide, we should, women are as good as men, they should have jobs just like men. Recognize who's being sacrificed. The children are being sacrificed because they're not trained up in the way they should go. And the next generation will be less ordered than this generation. That's the pattern we're seeing in our society. And the women are being sacrificed right. too. Oh, they're, absolutely. They're, yeah, you know, I know you don't disagree with that, but they're being sacrificed on the altars of commerce and money and and a lot of times they're being off, offered on that sacrifice and they're 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 willingly going they're like the vestal virgins where they're willingly going oh i get to be sacrificed to a god but yet i mean not always but frequently that's the case and it doesn't mean that they're not sacrificed it doesn't mean that the men don't bear responsibility because they are the head but at the same time and and when you get to the point where you're saying that the roles that women and men have are plastic and they don't really matter then then the the logical consequence of that is well maybe men and women don't matter and those are just plastic and we can we can pick and move back and forth between those two that and it it's taken us a generation or two to get there but uh, you realize homosexuality and that it, moves it, on to the it, gender it, stuff. It, yeah the everything that we have with transgenderism starts with these kinds of things being lost in a previous generation or two right yeah it kind of went it didn't come out of nowhere it didn't come out of nowhere the church lost the difference between men and women the next generation they lost the distinction about it in marriage and now we're losing the distinction about it in childhood we can't tell the difference if there is no difference how can you tell the difference 
And that's exactly where we're going. And it's the church's fault because the church has embraced the fact that, you know, they take Galatians 3 and they twist it and they say, in Christ, there is no male, there is no female. Well, that's not talking about roles. Paul didn't disagree with himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is consistent. And yet people say that and they twist it. And through that, our families are being destroyed. And through that, our culture is being destroyed and our churches are being destroyed because the church isn't willing to say the family actually matters. And it is how God ordered from the beginning when he created Eve. This is a fundamental order of society. And the church is not embracing it. And the Christ came to establish order and the church is rejecting the fundamental establishment of order in this in the world. So we started the podcast saying, realize that Christ came to establish order, that this is what Isaiah prophesied that he would do, and our expectation is that that's what he's done. And that we can look at the we can look at history and we can say there's been two thousand years of progress in a real mm -hmm. sense in which the world is more orderly now than it was when Christ came into the world because of what he did and what he's continuing to do through his church. And we're looking right now, we're saying, look at how the church in America at this particular time slice is going backwards. What we're not doing is we're not saying that the work of Christ is ineffectual. We're not saying that things are actually getting worse. We're saying in this moment, in this geography, things are worse, but that they're worse because God said that they were going to be getting better and we need to be getting back on that program. And just like at the time of the Reformation, just like, I mean, there have been other times where there's periods of times where the church has had, makes great advances and then the church falls back and they, they start to decay in a sense. And God's going to either, either God will cause a revival, he'll cause judgment, he'll use judgment to cause a revival. And so, I mean, this isn't, we're not saying this is the first decay that's ever happened. This isn't something that's greater than has ever happened before in the history of the world that this is going on. We're saying God has established order. There are these, there's this pattern to these things because God is a God of order, because things happen in, in ways that, that you can see that kind of repeat themselves. And we're saying that the church should, the church should wake up. The church should look at it. The church should understand this is what's going on. Do you see it? Do you believe in God? Do you have faith? If you do, act faithfully. God is, a, God is the same God he's always been. The important thing is to recognize that there are things we can do about it. What we have to do is start caring. So many people in the church, they think it is about them. They don't think it's about Christ. They say they think it's about Christ, but in the end, it's about their salvation. In the end, it's about their worship. In the end, it's about their comfort. In the end, it's about, instead of going, what is Christ doing here? And so what should we then do? And so one of the ways that, you know, it, we go, it's been 60 years, you know, and it's been 60 years. That's not that long. That's not that long. And maybe it's 80 years. Maybe it's the 1950s is where you really see it. The decline in doctrine happened earlier than that, but the decline in practice really starts happening in like 1950s, 1960s. And, but yet the ease at which it could be reestablished it can happen very quickly. Historically, it has happened very quickly in the past, but what it requires is to people to actually say these things matter and to start talking about them, start declaring them, start to say, this is what Christ came to do, so what are we doing about it? And as long as the church is going, but he's going to return and we'll all be raptured, that does as much damage as any of this other stuff because instead of the church going, 
we actually have a duty to the people around us. We have a duty to declare what it means to love your neighbor. Instead, what we do is we go, well, everything's just going to get worse. So we have no responsibility. That basically fundamentally is a statement that the church is not salt and it is not light. And the church has to come back. And I think there are signs that the church might be coming back to the recognition of the responsibility it has in the world. Not all the church, but not all the visible church. But there seems to be an increase of people going, wait a second, this eschatology that leads you to say, forget it, forget the world. That's very unbiblical. And there seems to be a movement that more people are recognizing the unbiblical nature of that. And if that happens, theology will start to drive some of the practice, and it will get better. And so it's not all gloom and doom. It's not all we're going to be destroyed. What's really required is to people to put away heresies. Heresies destroy. And they end up manifesting themselves in real practices, real practices that actually destroy cultures. And if we don't repent, we'll be destroyed. God's destroyed us destroyed nations before and he'll do it again and the repentance is pretty straightforward you actually have to believe that christ is king that he came that he is ruling over a kingdom you have to fear that king and if you start there then the repentance follows right he's ruling with a rod of iron you can't just say well things are supposed to get worse and worse no that's not what christ says all authority has been given to him you know do you believe that do you believe that applies to you right start there and repentance will happen the church is the light of the world. When we look at the world decaying, we should know where to look. We should look towards ourselves and ask ourselves, what do we need to change? And what I would argue and what we would argue is that what we need to change is the church needs to regain its sense of responsibility in the world and in itself to walk in accordance to God's commandments, to walk in accordance to his good ways, to bring order back instead of just embracing the chaos. We complain about the chaos, but the solution to eliminating the chaos is for us to be orderly. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.